Uh, good evening once again. Uh, somehow, you know, I was just sitting here and uh, I was just remembering some lines, that approximately some lines from, I think it's Thomas Wolfe, Look Homeward Angel. Do you know the beginning of that book? And he says, um, I, this is the way I remember the lines. <laughs> so unless some of you have the book, <laughs> you won't know. But the way I remember the lines is, Subtract us into nakedness and night again, and you will see, begin 4,000 years ago in Crete, the love that ended yesterday in Texas. Um, So we live in, um, you know, various worlds. Uh, and, you know, our culture and most of us have grown up how to take care of the everyday world, uh, which, as you know, is important. Um, you know, how to get places on time. About ten days ago, I thought I'd get to my dental hygiene appointment on time for a change. I'm usually ten minutes late. So, the highway patrolman told me I was going 82. (laughs) At the time, I, you know, was usually, I was constant, I've concentrated over the years on going 78. (laughs) And I was going a little fast that day. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a crack. There's been a crackdown, you know, on 101 because everybody goes under 70 now. Nobody goes 80 anymore on 101. Don't go 80 on 101. This is my tip for the horizontal plane tonight. So I was 10 minutes late for my appointment. <laughs> I emailed a friend and she said, that's pretty funny, a Zen teacher getting a speeding ticket. <laughs> and it's big bucks. So, you, you know, you be generous tonight. <laughs> Tonight, tonight I was early. <laughs> tonight I got here early, <laughs> and I didn't have to go on 101 to get here either. I just I live over just over the hill in Fairfax. So, <laughs> uh, no, actually, you know, uh, if you wouldn't know necessarily, but I get a flat fee no matter how much you give. So, uh, it's a little disclaimer, you know. So. So um, I don't I don't know about you. I want to talk a little bit tonight about you know various things, um, as I am want to do to talk about various things. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is creativity, and then one of the things I want to talk about is meditation, and the connection between creativity and meditation. And uh, we'll see some other things are going to come up. Oh, you know, and then. I think I was going to come back to that sense of the awesome in the room here. Because it is so uh, palpable if you are willing to notice it and receive it. And that awesome that's so palpable is also your own awareness. And usually when we're thinking about our own awareness, we're looking at the object of awareness. And the object of awareness has colors, and it has uh, conceptual thinking, it has uh, emotions, it has sounds, the objects of awareness. 
awareness itself doesn't have objects. It's so vast and boundless. And this is your own awareness. So when you're no longer busy identifying with the objects as being you, you have a chance to notice your own awesomeness. So, um, and then this is also related to meditation and your creativity. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) So, um, I've been interested in creativity for years. And, you know, uh, I think in our own way, we're all creative. But some of us, you know, need to have more of a gift for being creative and others have, uh, you know, other kinds of gifts. Some of us have a gift for, you know, uh, intimacy and connection. Like teachers. (laughs) Um, By the way, you know, it's... So I sit and, you know, I came, I come early on these Monday nights and I went to dinner and I start listening to the room and I start listening to what's in the air and listening to people. And then uh, several of you came up to me during the break. So I try to hear what, to talk to what's in the air. Do you understand, you know, your consciousness is not just yours. And all of our, you know, scientists now have come to this conclusion, you know, the total number of minds in the universe. <laughs> and because nobody's ever demonstrated how the stuff inside a cranium could actually produce consciousness. Have you thought about this? How some, you know, and when people dissect brains, That stuff has generated consciousness at some point? I mean, that's, that's really far out. You know, where does this... So where... So the consciousness that any of us have seems to be, you know, some version of consciousness. <laughs> so it's, and, and then we have different versions of that. Of, our version is a little bit different than everybody else's version of consciousness. Right? And thank goodness, right? We wouldn't want, you know, just a bunch of rubber stamp duplicate consciousnesses running around. (laughs) And, um, you know, some of us have um, an interest in, I, I seem to have a gift for food and tasting things. Uh, When I ask my musician friends, how do you play that? How do you do that? And they say, you just do it. Well, you might just do it. I don't just do it. (laughs) Oh. And then when people ask me, how do you cook that? Well, you just cook. What do you mean, how? So we have, you know, gifts. Each of us has gifts, and then we also have, you know, life issues. (laughs) Life lessons, stuff we're working on. And, you know, the story's not over yet, and you've got a few years, you know. And um, so we're working on stuff. And we're, we're, each of us in our own lives is trying to figure out how do, what are, what do I have to offer? What are my gifts? How do I share my gifts with others in the world, partly just because I love to do that and partly because maybe I could earn a living doing that (laughs) rather than uh, abandoning myself in order to do something for others that they will pay me to do because they want me to and because I'm willing to abandon myself to do that and, you know, so... Some of us end up being stuck sometimes in jobs or relationships that, you know, we don't seem to be benefiting ourselves or others. How are we going to do that? 
and we're working through things. Um, <laughs> I don't know, how does this happen, you know? Anyway, um, uh, one person told me, he said, you know, you're extremely gifted. You have a brilliance in areas of psychology and spirituality that's like 99th percentile. Is that good for anything? <laughs> um, but, you know, he said, um, when you're at the karmic store before you get born, you that was a good purchase. But, you know, you can't buy everything. And you couldn't afford much for intimacy. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. So we've all somehow ended up here with certain things we're good at and other things we're not so good at, and we're working to use our gifts and to work through or find out what our lessons are and how to learn our lessons. And, you know, I don't know, so we're where we are. Uh, so, you know, in that, re- in that respect, I love the um, a Kabir poem, you know, where he says, um, The guest is inside you and inside me. The sprout lies hidden within the seed. None of us has gotten very far. Set aside your arrogance and take a look around inside. Take a look around inside. So this inside is very interesting. What Kabir says about it is, the blue sky extends further and further. The daily sense of failure comes to an end. The damage I have done to myself fades away. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that place. Inside your own being. Not looking outside. And, you know, not being able to, and this is important actually, you know, not being able to know the answer or think up the answer. And the way that um, creativity works and meditation works. And there was a very interesting article, by the way, in last July in the New Yorker magazine about insight. And scientists are now have studied insight for many years, which I'm tonight calling creativity. And um, uh, this is to say that you become, when we become very focused... And uh, you are, and depending on whether we're an artist or a musician or a cook or a psychologist or a scientist or a physicist or a housewife or a husband or a parent or a child, you know, we get we get very focused, and we can't figure out, you know, what to do. And when we're very focused, and then. Uh, What's necessary is actually to relax, you know, to be relaxed, focused and relaxed. This is very unusual, it turns out. But um, focused and then relaxed, and then something can occur to you. Something comes to you, and you get it. And sometimes, occasionally, what you get is actually, you know, recognizable. (laughs) This is interesting because, you know, um, people who get things like the laser beam, I I don't get laser beams. But I decided, it came to me recently, I'm going to do another book. So that's, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. It just came to me. I didn't, you know, I'm, so I've spent, I spend most, I spend a good deal of my life. What am I going to do with myself? What am I going to do with myself? You know, in the in the Myers Briggs or Kiersey, you know, I'm in the one percent who's like still trying to figure out who he is. <laughs> Sixty-four tomorrow, and what am I doing here? 
you know, like the Rumi poem, I'm a strange bird from a distant continent. <laughs> All day long I ask myself, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> I'm not from here. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're here at Spirit Rock, you're not, you're not from here. I mean, what I mean is, you know, you're not part of this culture. You know, you start having a spiritual life and you're not, it's almost like you're not an American anymore. Although this seems to be maybe changing with this last election, huh? But if you're quiet, uh, very quiet and very focused, and your mind is then, and then the article about insight, it actually says, you need to be focused on letting your mind wander. This is scientists now who are saying this. So I want to be one of the first meditation teachers to start explaining this to you. <laughs> that this isn't just about getting calm and peaceful and making your mind empty and like a covering it over like a parking lot so nothing is going on in it. And, and it's not going to tell you anything because you don't want to hear from it. You just wanted to shut up and be quiet and peaceful. Thank you very much. And then, uh, and then what? The one you got once you've got your mind to be quiet and peaceful. Now what? You know. And then, are you ready for something to occur to you at that point? You know? So this is pretty amazing that we can have things occur to us. What you do in your life. If you're Mozart, you know, you get symphonies. So in a few minutes, apparently, or seconds, you know, Mozart would get whole compositions, and then he had to spend weeks and months writing down all those notes. <laughs> Very laborious. So we don't actually spend all of our life having insights or creative, but part of our creativity then is, you know, on one hand, it's hearing what to do, what to say, and the other thing is working on how do I actually do that? Can I actually do that? How do I, what do I, how do I actually do that? How do I actually say that? Is there some way for me to communicate this? Is there some way for me to, you know, move in the direction of something that's arising inside of me? Is there something that's come to me? It's, this is a, this is a, it's very challenging, you know. How do we do this? And um, there's not some ready-made way to do this, where each of us, each of us is kind of finding out how to do this. To hear your own, to meet yourself, greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror. To meet yourself, to greet yourself. Or as Mary Oliver says, you know, when you go out into the night, you left home, and it's dark, and there's rocks and branches on the road, and you head off into the night, and it's dark, and you begin to hear a voice. And gradually you realize it's your own. And this is also what happens in meditation. There's a lot of voices going on, a lot of things happening, and a lot of thoughts. Which ones are the ones you're going to listen to? Which one, you know, keeps coming back to you and telling you, this is what I truly want. This is what you want. This is what we want to do with this, as again, Mary Oliver says, this one, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? One wild and precious life. What do we do? And my teacher, of course, Suzuki Roshi, you know, in the Zen tradition, you practice meditation not to gain enlightenment because of how enlightened you are. It's wise to practice meditation, and you must have gotten, you must have gotten struck at some point. <laughs> it's time to meditate. I have a friend, you know, um, Isan Dorsey, 
he's dead now, you know, he's been dead 20 years or 15 years, I don't remember, 10 years, 20 years. But Issan, you know, was a female impersonator for 20 years, went all over the country, Alaska, took all the drugs, did everything that female impersonators do. He had a practice all those years. He said there were only two nights when I got back to where I was staying and I did not hang my clothes up. <laughs> That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Two nights of being high and lost and on drugs and alcohol and what have you, and then hang up your clothes before you go to bed. But one day, um, Issan was walking down Haight Street in San Francisco, looked in a bookstore window, and there was Ramana Maharshi. And Issan thought, it's time for me to start meditating. It's not because anybody says, Issan, you've got to start meditating. You know, you're getting too much stress and you know you need to calm down and you know this is really going to straighten you out and this it's not something you get talked into. It's something that flashes. And you know, scientifically they say these things flash that when your left brain, the part that is thinking, 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 figuring, 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 sorting, 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 and when that part gets really quiet, then your consciousness can actually listen to the right brain, which has all different sorts of connections, and then the whole right side of your head lights up. Then the scientists call it, your brain goes incandescent. Time to start meditating. <laughs> I think I'll bake some bread now. I'm going to clean the house. You know, some of these things are big deal things, and then some of them are little things. I'm going to cook dinner. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's that time. <laughs> and some of these things are, you know, I'm going to do a book. I'm going to do some music. I think I, you know, really do want to be a therapist. And some of us, you know, got started early at what our gifts are, and others of us are still finding a way. What is, what is it that's coming through you? And it's not you. It's not me. It doesn't, you know, we don't dream these things up. They come from somewhere else. And you make space for something to occur to you by getting focused, quiet, and listening deeply, and something flashes. And you get it, and you know. And you don't have to think, is that, is that really, you know, well, I don't know. And, you know, I agonize over a lot of things. There's three ways that people make decisions. Some people take in data. Do you know about this? Some people take in data and they think about it. They go off by themselves, they think about it, they decide what to do and they're right. 40% of the population. And you cannot... Lived with one 20 years. <laughs> and I, I didn't know this, that I would have had to... You know, you have the conversation and then you need to give her time to go off by herself and think about it before she's going to change her mind. In the course of the conversation, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> the second kind of person talks out loud about everything they're thinking and then eventually comes to a conclusion and then they're right. And you don't want to interrupt them. <laughs> you know, if they say, and you are so self-absorbed, you don't want to say, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? You don't want to do that because then you're getting in a fight and argument. You just want to say, oh, tell me more about that. <laughs> and eventually they come to a conclusion, you're such a nice person. <laughs> and then you don't want to go back to earlier in the conversation. You know, because if you go back to earlier in the conversation, no, that was earlier in the conversation. Remember, you just go to the end of the conversation, right? Just, the, just. So those people, you want to keep them talking and you don't want to get distracted by early on in the conversation. You want to keep them talking until they get to their conclusion. And boy, is that tiresome sometimes. <laughs> and once they get to the conclusion, you can tell them anything you want to tell them. Because now they're ready to listen. 
And then there's 20%, 19% of the population, the third type. <laughs> and the third type is a mixture, a combination of the first two. Goes off by yourself, you think about things, talks out loud about stuff, and they agonize over everything. <laughs> what would you like for breakfast? <laughs> Want to go to Hawaii? <laughs> well, yes, well, no. Well, I'd love travel. No, I don't. I mean, I, you know. <laughs> but so when you're, when you're thinking, you can, if you want, agonize everything, or you can sort things out the way you sort things out. But when you get something comes to you, you get it. So when I was 10 years old, you know, and I was at my aunt's house, and homemade bread. First time in my life I'd had homemade bread. Ten years old is an awesome age. And butter. And homemade jam. And I thought, why aren't we eating like this? Why are we eating my family, why are we eating store-bought bread? What went wrong <laughs> in this culture? And then it came to me, I will learn how to make bread and I will teach others to make bread. And I didn't think to think anymore like, oh, is that really what I want to do? I don't know if I really want to do that. I mean, isn't there something better to do? Maybe I should be saving the oceans and the polar bears. And, you know, what would I, why would I want to teach people? You know, you don't think about it anymore. So when I was 25 years old, toss our bread book. You know, I went, came back from that vacation. I said to my mom, will you teach me to make bread? She said, no, yeast makes me nervous. <laughs> And then I got to Tassajara, I was 21 years old, and the cook said, of course we'll teach you to make bread, and then you can be the dishwasher and the baker. Thank you. It was awesome, and then I learned to make bread. And then, uh, and then I, I, well, I'm going to learn how to make bread, and I will teach people to make bread. And America changed. <laughs> and I have one friend, you know, who... Um, started a bakery in 1970 when my book came out. He sold the bread out of the back of his woody station wagon, door to door in Bloomington, Indiana. Two years later, they had a plant with 24 rack oven and seven retail stores. And about 27 or 28 years after that, he sold his bakery for $35 million. <laughs> Different bakeries. But he did one bakery with the ashram, you know, for 20 years. They sold that, and then he started his own bakery, partially baking the bread and then freezing it. If you want it, you pick it up. I'm not in the trucking business. Something came to him. After 20 years of being a baker, after 20 years of doing, oh, we make bread, we make pies, we make muffins, we make scones, we make cakes, we make pies, we make soups, we make salads, we make croissants. And then when that got sold, I'm going to make bread. It's going to be partially frozen, and if you want it, you come get it. <laughs> and his plants were, you know, a block square, the city of Boston loved him because this is called Jobs. And, you know, and the flour is hosed into silos. We don't have to figure out what to do with all those flour sacks, those 100-pound flour sacks, those cans that oil comes in. No, the oil's hosed into the silos. The flour's hosed. No, we have three mechanics full-time. The thing's going around the clock 24 hours a day. We have, we have people working here from 15 countries. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good or not, but 
anyway, America changed. <laughs> and there's a lot of bakeries, and you know, I know many people who started baking bread because I, because that occurred to me. Things like this are occurring, you know, and then so you know, so apparently, you know, even at ten years old, I was listening, and a lot of us were listening, probably better at eight, nine, ten years old than we are now. Could be. But it's a big thing to you know to you know reown your youthful innocence and what was going on at eight, nine, ten years old, and that's something that happens in meditation. There's a lot of you know things that are occurring to us in meditation, and then so a lot of things are like arising and disappearing. They come and they go, and every so often something comes. And you say, yes, okay, I get it. In the um, article in the New Yorker, you know, they talk about, um, the article starts out with this story about Montana forest fire in, in the 1946 or 48. Um, and there was a fire and they sent in uh, 15 smoke jumpers. And when the smoke jumpers came down on one side of the canyon, the fire was on the other side of the canyon, and the wind was blowing it away from them. And then once they started down the hill, the wind turned direction, and the fire was blowing towards them at 700 feet a minute or something like this. Thirteen of them died. The head of the crew told them to abandon the whole thing and you know, a retreat up back up the hill. They could not run the fire. And the head of the crew was a man named Wag Jones. And um, he was uh, going away from the fire, and he saw that the fire was... He wasn't going to be able to outrun the fire. And he got out his cigarette lighter and lit the ground in front of him. So the fire started up the hill away from him. He stepped into the burned area. And then when the fire... And then he got out his handkerchief put his head down to the ground where he could breathe the only air there was, and the fire went over him. And that's something that just came to him. And he didn't think, is that really going to save me? (laughs) 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 Yes, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. But it comes to you, and you know. This is happening to all of us, you know. I mean, um, in the dining room at my table, or when I, you know, in the course of having dinner tonight, I met um, mother and daughter who come here every Monday night together. It's their night out. I met a man who's getting married in two months. Very fortunately, I met a couple who are seem to be very happily, you know, married. Um, There's a lot of blessings in our life. How do we come to those things? And even though there's, and along with the blessings, you know, and blessings are very closely related to wounds. Uh, One of the meanings of blessing is to be sanctified with blood. That's the blood of your wound. And one way you realize your blessing is to accept your wounds and start to take care of them and yourself instead of punishing yourself for being wounded. That's called, you know, meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that happens, of course, in meditation is you start to notice how wounded you are. And finally, somebody is paying attention to you in the way you've always wanted attention. Only, damn it, you're the one who has to do it. (laughs) I've often thought, couldn't someone else be me? And, you know, I've had you know, various relationships in my life, and then people leave because I'm too impossible and difficult and intense and moody and 
<clears throat> and I, you know, I tell them, well, you know, I would too, but... <laughs> if I was you, I would too, um, you know, but I don't seem to be able to um, abandon myself any more than I've been doing. And seems like somebody's going to have to be me. Damn. I guess I'm the only candidate, you know, who's really taken on the job. <laughs> so, anyway, I've been working at this for a long time, you know, being me. And finally getting around to, you know, little by little, um, being willing to be me. And uh, somebody who saw my movie recently said, for a curmudgeon, you're rather sweet. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of appropriate and fitting and nice thing to say. Uh, So I want to tell you a story about, for me, um, we probably need to stop pretty soon, don't we? I don't know. 9.15 or something we need to stop at, right? So we have a few more minutes. Um, So I want to tell you a story, um, and this is a different kind of, you know, uh, insight or creative spark or, you know, incandescent moment. I I started practicing Zen in 1965, and during the 70s, I got on the Zen Center fast track. You know, I dropped out of college to go to the mountains and attain true realization. And ten years later, I was president and chairman of the board of a four million dollar a year spiritual corporation called the Zen Center. (laughs) Can you read this balance sheet? Better learn how to do that. Profit and loss? Budgets? No, I mean, yes, of course. No, I haven't been to business school. So, you know, I was uh, the buyer and then head of the meditation hall and then, you know, um, head resident teacher in San Francisco and then president of the Zen Center and chairman of the board. And Zen Center, when I started, was $6,000 a year budget, $500 a month to pay Suzuki Roshi. And then we decided to buy Tassajara. That was $300,000 in 1966. We had no money. So we had to raise you know, the money for a down payment, $25,000. And you know, that was when we had the Zenefit <laughs> with the Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Jefferson Airplane, and Big Brother and the Holding Company. <laughs> At the Avalon Ballroom on Sutter Street, $2 a ticket. And we raised $1,800. And then by the time I was president and chairman of the board, $4 million a year. So... Anyway, then I decided to drop out again, (laughs) and I became a busboy at Greens. You know, there's something that some of us do pretty naturally, and then others of us have to focus on it, but one of the things I can do is I can look at something and uh, certain situations, and I know what needs to get done, and I will do it. I will do what needs to get done. If there's dishes sitting there, I can damn well wash them. And I will wash them, or I'll see that somebody washes them. And other people say, well, that's not my job. Uh, What dishes? You know, a friend of mine, um, I told her, you're somebody like me. You know, you're this big shot person. You notice what needs to get done and you'll do it. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, tell me about your life. And she said, well, you know, about 15, 18 years ago, 
I needed work, so I got a job as a temporary legal aide at a law firm. Six weeks later, they were asking me to run their cases for them. This is because you notice what needs to be done, and you will see that it gets done. So some of us have this kind of gift. Others of us don't. This is so interesting, you know. And that just because it's not your gift, doesn't. that means that if you really work at it, some of the things we're really working at, and then we get really good at them. So oftentimes somebody who's a therapist, it's because they've actually had intimacy and communication issues, and then you work at it, and then you eventually teach others how to do it because you work so hard at it because you weren't gifted in that area. Right? So um, six weeks, you know, she's, she's running their cases for them. And then pretty soon, you know, a few more years, and she's a partner in the law firm. She's not even a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and this last, uh, a year ago, last May, she passed the Washington State Bar Exam, which you can do without going to law school. How do you do this, you know? And it's like, is she a lawyer? I mean, was she born to be a lawyer? Well, not exactly, but, you know, something comes along and she can, she'll do this. So I can, so I got to Greens and I'm a busboy. And then after a few weeks, I'm, I'm a waiter. And then, you know, within a few months, I'm training all the floor staff. And then, you know, a while later, you know, and then I, I, I learned how to do the beverage bar and the cashier and the host. And pretty soon I'm the manager and wine buyer. All you need to do is like see what needs to get done and you know make it happen. It's, it's not comp- you know for some of us that's not complicated. And then when Zen Center had, which some of you may know about, you know Zen Center had its meltdown in 1983. <clears throat> I got a call at Greens. I'd been in exile for five years since I dropped out working at Greens, and I got a call. We're convening the full board. You, we want you to come. And then they elected me chairman of the board again <laughs> during the, um, you know, the end of the empire at Zen Center. <clears throat> Shoes outside the door if you want to read up about it, you know. So then the following year, I was at Tassajara, and I was leading the practice period. Head resident teacher. <laughs> You have no idea, do you? How do you get? How do any of us get to be anything in our lives? My first mother, you know, died when I was three years old. I went to. I went. I lived at Sunny Hills in San Anselmo for four years when it was an orphanage. So you know, what spiritual practices for me, it's just going back to the orphanage. We're all orphans. How do you think we got here? <laughs> So I know something about living with orphans, you know, and and finding your way, you know, in a world where you're lost. Because I've studied it, and we all have the power, the capacity to study this, to study how to find your way, not knowing your way, but finding your way. And it's something we study, and then you you go off and you come back and. Uh, it's only a step at a time you find your way. And sometimes it's bigger things that occur to you, and sometimes it's littler things, and, you know, there's some missteps, but you find your way. So I'm sitting in the Zendo in February of 1984. I'm the resident teacher. And we bow to the cushion, bow away from the cushion, and when the teacher bows to the cushion, bows away, you know, they hit a bell for you. And I sit down on my cushion, and I've got my robes. Straighten them out. The rest of the room, people are sitting facing the wall. In our tradition, we sit facing the wall, and I'm sitting facing the middle of the room. And then, you know, I'm going to meditate today. <laughs> what shall I do today? Quiet my mind? Calm my heart? Impeccable concentration, focus on feelings, pleasant, unpleasant. Should I count my breath, follow my breath, 
<laughs> should I note my breath? What should I do today? What kind of project should we have, you know? Oh, maybe I could, you know, and maybe, you know, could have some really great experience if I, if I just meditated right. And so I'm asking myself, what should I do today? And then, I don't know, you know, you can't tell, where does it come from? But this, I hear, it's like this voice said, why don't you just touch what's inside with some warmth and kindness? Why don't you just touch what's inside with some love and tenderness? And right away, the tears were just pouring down my face. I mean, I didn't have to think twice about, well, do I, am I going to do that or not do that? I just, well, yeah. I had been practicing meditation for 19 years. And then it occurred to me, touch what's inside. Meditation got really hard after that. So then, you know, a few weeks after that, I went to talk to Katagiri Roshi. He was the interim abbot of Zen Center. I thought I would check. Katagiri Roshi, in my meditation, I'm just touching what's inside. Is that okay? Is that Zen? I'd like to make sure that I'm practicing Zen, you know. I'd like to do Zen. <laughs> Some people would like to be a good Buddhist. You know, I want to be a good Buddhist. So I want to be a good Zen person. Is this okay? Can I just touch what's inside? Is that Zen? Is that okay? And Katagiri Roshi, some of you may have known him, but, you know, he would sit very straight. And then when he answered, he said, Ed, for 20 years, I tried to do the zazen of Zen Master Dogen before I realized there was no such thing. <laughs> and then that little voice inside me said, right on schedule. <laughs> I had been meditating for 19 years, doing it right, doing what you're supposed to do to be a good meditator, to get some credit, to get some recognition, to have some improvement in my life so that I could be a spiritual person. And maybe if I was spiritual enough, I could like myself. And maybe if I was spiritual enough, other people would like me, especially women. Yep. Because <laughs> I'm not going to be a rock star. <laughs> and I'm not much of a provider. You know, I'm not much of a pocketbook. Maybe if I got to be spiritual enough. But anyway, um, so I just started touching what's inside. You know, I'm not saying that's what you should do, you know, but if you're quiet and you focus and you relax, some, you know, now and again, something will come to you. And you won't always recognize it. It won't always be in the words like I just told you words. And sometimes you need to spend a little time translating what you hear into everyday words or language or action. But you got the message. You know, some of the messages we get are in, you know, so to speak, angel talk spirit talk, and it doesn't always translate so easily into earth talk. You know, sell your flocks, go to Egypt tonight. <laughs> but, but other times there's, um, you know, build an ark. Oh, okay. 
So we're, anyway, you know, we're in these times. I saw Michael Mead the other night. You know, Michael Mead said, it's dark times, you know, and things may be getting darker. And when it's like that, you want to dive. <laughs> Get ahead of the descent. <laughs> and he was also saying, you know, these are not times of enlightenment. These are times of endarkenment. But um, when you're in the dark, you also come to a place where you know you will be um, touched and healed and put back together and popped back up to the surface. And you know, a lot of that we're not in charge of. It's not about how competent or incompetent you are. I mean, the classic story you know is Job. He loves God. He prays to God. He's, you know, and Satan, you know, makes his deal with God. Well, of course he does. You've given him all the advantages. Test him out. So Job's lying there finally on the ground. You know, he's lost his wife, his family, his flocks, his farm, his lands, and his body's covered with infected skin boils. And people come by and they say, Job, have you tried praying? (laughs) You know, there must have been something wrong. Something You did something wrong, right? But actually, you know, we're, you know, we're in this world, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we have ascendant and sometimes we're descendant and we have, you know, and in this lower vertical, you know, we, there's healing that takes place. And it's not the point of our spiritual practice to always be in some American, you know, beauty land, you know, and immune. I, you know, I often think about it as the you know, the models. I, I, I ran a little writing studio out in Inverness and the other day, actually, Saturday, there was a film crew there. My landlady had rented her place to the film crew from France. And there was a young woman there who, with kind of dark brown hair. And um, I had been out talking with one of the all the film crew people were about 30 and they had on gray sweat, a gray, charcoal gray uh, Levi jeans and charcoal gray kind of down jackets, the women with little fur-lined things on their down jackets. It was a little bit cold. And here's the model. And so I was out there talking with one of the film people. She's not from France, actually, but near France. I said, near France? And she said, Belgium. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Belgium. <laughs> Okay, and then so we're talking, and then I realize like the 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 rest of the camera crew, the rest of the film crew is coming out, and the model's coming out, and so I'm going in, and so I pass right by the model, and you know I say good afternoon, a good afternoon, and she just like walks right by me, like who the heck are you, and what do I care? So um, anyway, part of, you know, the spirituality in America is you earn a lot of money, you're beautiful, you know, you do yoga, you know, you've got it together, you're calm, you're quiet, you're peaceful, you're serene. You don't have these kind of like problems. (laughs) But, you know, I spent my life having problems, so, and at some point it's like, yes, you know, you can say yes. So, oh, and I do want to uh, just, you know, add in here at some point that, you know, I did find after 20 years of Zen practice, I found all the instructions in Vipassana really useful. I don't want you to think, I started out the evening saying, you might not always want to busy yourself with instructions, but on the other hand, you might find them very useful. And part of this is 
finding out for yourself and knowing for yourself what's useful for you today in your life now. You know, not just what's a good practice that I ought to be doing if I only could. What's my practice today? You know, is there a useful focus for me? I think we've, uh, you know, running out of time, and I'm running out of, I mean, I could come up with more things to say, but let's say that I'm finished. Um, I do like to um, end the evening. Um, I'll hit the bell, and we can chant. Um, I like the uh, simple chant that I do is the syllable ho. Ho is the Japanese word for dharma, Buddhist teaching. I also like it because, you know, it's when Santa Claus says it three times, you know, (laughs) it's ho, ho, ho. And then um, in other languages, you know, it's more, you know, bad-sounding things. (laughs) But I heard that in American, there's an American Indian language where it means peace. And then, you know, there's a derogatory word in black slang. (laughs) So it's a kind of, I think of it as a sound that includes, you know, everything. But I also like to do it because, uh, you know, it's a vowel sound, and when you do a vowel sound, you can leave your mouth open. Ho! Instead of, if you said om, then you go om. And then your sound disappears into silence, which is part of the value of that. But this is ho, and, and then it just resonates out, and you'll see it fills the room, and you let the sound resonate through your body and cleanse you. You let the sound wash through, and then you enter the sound, and then we send our prayers and blessings out to the world with the sound. So whoever you'd like to share your prayers and blessings with, all beings, or any family or friends, or anyone you know who pets the world. Okay, so I'll hit the bell, and then we'll take about a minute, and then I'll hit the bell again to end. And you can just keep chanting, and then when I hit the bell to end, and it finish... Go on and finish the sound that you're in the middle of. The sound of that part. Ready? Um, thank you, safe travels and uh, blessings. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, and there are a few more announcements, the departure announcements. I know the one about when you go out, you know, get to the stop sign, turn right. I know that one. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.